Everybody likes food, right? We enjoy food. Well, food is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures, and especially a theme of eating before the Lord. It starts way back in the book of Genesis, the first volume of the Torah that Moses wrote. In Genesis chapter 1, it speaks of God creating the vegetation and giving it to Adam and Eve as good for food. And so you would have had Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as herbivores. I'll mention that awful word, vegetarians. In the Garden of Eden, before there was death, before animals died, they would have eaten before the Lord as a kind of feast in the Garden of Eden. But then, as you know, the story of the Bible unfolds and Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator and are driven out of (coughs) the presence of the Lord, out of Eden. But then there's a flicker of hope of being able to eat before the Lord again. And it comes when God enters into a covenant relationship with the Hebrews And in Exodus chapter 24, there's a kind of ratification of this covenant that God makes with his people Israel. And Moses and Aaron and uh, and the 70 elders are invited up to a mountain, Mount Sinai, to come before the Lord. And Moses records this event in, in Exodus chapter 24. It says, then... He said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. And then in Exodus 24, verse 5, it says, he sent young men, he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings. We saw that offering in chapter 1 of Leviticus, ascension offerings, and sacrifice young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. That's the sacrifice we're going to look at this morning. And so these sacrifices are offered at Sinai. And then in verses 9 through 11, almost shocking kind of way of Exodus chapter 24, it says, then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself, and yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of Israel, that is, stretch out his hand to kill them. And they saw God, and then I love this, and they ate and they drank. They ate and they drank. So again, here is a kind of a, of a picture of a way back to eating with God, sitting at his table where he hosts this meal and his people are eating in his presence. And this is what we're going to see again with these peace offerings. This was a very unique sacrifice amongst the Israelites. It was a unique sacrifice because it was the one sacrifice in which the worshiper, the one who brought the offering, could also partake of that offering and enjoy a kind of barbecued meal with the priest, and as we're going to see, with his family and sometimes with his friends. All of this in the tabernacle before the Lord. But just by way of review, this is the third of the sacrifices. The first sacrifice we saw in chapter 1 was the sacrifice of the whole burnt offering. We also called it the ascension offering because that's what the, the Hebrew word literally communicates, where the entire animal is butchered on the altar and is smoked on that altar so that all of it ascends to God in smoke. And it was... Its primary function was that of atonement. 
where the worshiper would lay his hand on the head of that animal. And, and it's explicitly stated that this animal was sacrificed so that the worshiper would be accepted before the Lord. That this was making atonement. This was making reconciliation between the worshiper and his God as that animal dies in the place of the worshiper. Instead of the worshiper. That was the first sacrifice. And you can see how wonderfully and beautifully that sacrifice points to the sacrifice of Christ as our substitute. But the second sacrifice in chapter 2 we saw is the grain offering sacrifice or as I called it the tribute offering. This was the, the one sacrifice that highlighted particularly the response of the Israelite before the Lord as they offer a tribute gift subjecting themselves to Yahweh, God of Israel, and the sacrifice and the atonement that he provides in the burnt offering as a way of coming before him in devotion, in thanks, and in subjection of oneself to the true and living God. And now this third sacrifice, which in many ways is a kind of a culmination of the sacrifices where the worshiper can eat a meal in fellowship with the true and living God. And each of these sacrifices are much like a diamond. You, you think of the, the Hope Diamond that exists in the Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., and this, this large diamond turns every few minutes so that the light, as the light hits this diamond, it reflects in a slightly different kind of way so that those observers can see the different angles of the diamond. So also we have in these different sacrifices slightly different angles that point to that glorious diamond of the sacrifice of Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at four different purposes of the peace offering and their application to us. The first is that this peace offering is an offering that enjoys peaceful fellowship with God. It's, a, it's an offering that enjoys peace with God. Let's look at verse 1. It says, now if this offering, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings. Peace offerings. This word here, translated peace offerings, it, it comes from that somewhat familiar Hebrew word, shalom, okay? If you know somebody who's Jewish, uh, you, they may greet you with the word shalom. Shalom uh, is a word that is translated peace, sometimes well-being. Um, it's the plural for shalom that we have here. So it's pieces, not Reese pieces, but it's pieces. It, it, it's, it's a word that communicates wholeness, well-being, ceasing of conflict before the Lord, enjoyment of fellowship and relationship with God. The Shalomim offering. The second part of verse 1, if he is going to offer it out of the herd. Now, in this chapter, there's, we're going to see there's some of these peace offerings are from the herd, some are from the flock, the sheep, and some are from the goats. Now, if you remember the first meat offering in chapter 1, there could be from the herd, it could be from the flock, but it could also be from amongst the birds, okay? But there's no bird offering here, no provision for birds to be out, probably because you can't get very much meat from the bird. This is, we're going to see, this is an offering that's split three ways between the Lord, between the priest, and between the offer. Well, if it's, a, if it's just a pigeon or a turtle tough, you'd just be getting a, a, a very small piece of meat. It's, it's not much of a meal, right? And so the bird is excluded here. And here is, is the explanation of when you're bringing an animal out of the herd, whether male or female. This is also unique to the peace offering. Remember with the burnt offering or the ascension offering, it was only males that were to be brought. He shall offer it without defect before the Lord. This is the same also as the burnt offering. You couldn't bring some defected animal, no, no three-legged bulls. 
you know, no, uh, you know, goats with two heads on them or anything like that. No, no deformed animals. Verse two, he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons and the priests shall sprinkle the blood around on the altar. This is the exact same thing as with the burnt offerings. Here is this symbolic laying of the hand on the head. This is identifying with that animal that this animal is a substitute. And also, there's the slaying of the animal. And, and as was mentioned before, it's not the priest that slays the animal, it's the worshiper. It's the one who brings the offering here who does the slaying. And the priest's job is to then spr- to, to sprinkle, or probably even better, to splatter the blood on the altar. Verse 3, from the sacrifice of the priest's offerings, he shall present his offering by fire to the Lord and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, he shall remove from the kidneys. So here we have a description that is made here of what is to be done with part of the animal, which part is to go to the Lord and to be burned on the altar. Notice it says, the fat that covers the entrails and all that is fat that is on the entrails. So, so all their fat that we're going to see in this offering, all the fat goes to the Lord. Not only the fat, but also the kidney in the liver. Now, often when we think of the fat on the animal, you know, we think of the steak and, you know, maybe on the edge of the steak, there's some globules of fat and you may like or you may not like that fat that's there and and maybe that's that's you know the part of the steak that goes to your dog Skippy or Lucky or whatever or or maybe you enjoy that part and you scarf it down yourself well it's not talking about that kind of fat this is the fat that's on the inside the the internal fat uh of the animal and and it was also considered the best part of the animal Okay, it was the goods. It was the good stuff. This is all to be offered before the Lord in smoke. And also the kidneys and the liver. And you notice what is not mentioned here. And and more on that in a minute. It doesn't mention the rest of the animal here in chapter 3. Verse 5. Offered up in smoke on the altar. Very important. Notice this next prepositional phrase. On the burnt offering, very important, which is on the wood that is on the fire, it is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Notice this fat and these internal organs of the liver in the kidney are to be placed on top of the burnt offering. Now, this is significant because there's rich theology here. Remember the burnt offering, the purpose of the burnt offering was atonement. It was taking the punishment. So here, what we see here, the nuance of this peace offering is it goes on top of the burnt offering. Namely, it's an enjoyment of the benefits of the burnt offering. It's an enjoyment of the peace and the reconciliation, the atonement that came from the burnt offering. It is the icing on the cake, or if you will, it's the fat on top of the meat. It's the fat on top of the whole burnt offering that is ascending to the Lord. And again, just in case you weren't clear on that, or maybe you missed the the message on the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, it says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And that's the fascinating thing that is missing here in chapter 3. There is no mention of atonement with the peace offering. There's no mention of atonement. There's still the laying on of the hands, identifying with the animal but there's no mention of atonement because the atonement was made with the burnt offering and the peace offering is now an enjoyment, a delight in 
a celebration of acceptance with God and peace with the creator. Now, we're not going to go through the rest of this chapter in detail, but just notice in verse 6, I alluded to it already. He gives an explanation what's to happen if it comes from the flock. And the only thing different if it's from the flock, we see in verse 9 that, the interestingly enough, the sheep in this part of the world, they often had a, a tail that had fat on it. And there's some stipulation here that this fatty tail was also to be burned, burned on the altar. And then in verse 12, again, it's the goat. Same, same regulation that's given for the goat as with, uh, from the herd that we saw in the first five verses. And then verse 17, there is a negative prohibition given here. In verse 17, it says, it is a perpetual statue throughout your generation, generations in all your dwellings. In other words, as long as this covenant exists, these sacrifices are to be offered for the Lord. This is how you're to do it. Now, obviously, again, we don't live under this covenant. And so none of you brought any goats this morning. None of you brought any sheep this morning. But this was the regulation as long as that covenant was in order. And then this prohibition at the end, you shall not eat any fat or any blood. With all these sacrifices the fat always had to be burned on the altar. Now, now some, some commentators say that the fat was to be burned on the altar, you know, for health reasons, you know, for low cholesterol. Now, I know that, that is an argument that some make as we see some of these regulations, and, and we're going to get into a little bit of that when we get into chapters 11 through 15 with the dietary laws, but but I don't think that is the primary function of the prohibition against fat. I mean, after all, then God would have high cholesterol because the fat is to be given unto the Lord. Uh, but it's not for health reasons because the fat was the best portion of the animal. God was to get the best. And the blood, nobody was allowed to, to drink of the blood, which, again, that's disgusting. But it was a clear prohibition because of chapter 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Right, The blood was a purifying agent, as we're going to see. The blood had to be spilled out of the animal and, and splattered on the altar. No Israelite was to drink of that blood. But again, what is missing here in this chapter is what happens to the rest of the animal. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because you have to go in chapters, it's in chapters 6 in seven, that there's more regulations that are given on how to dispose of the animal, okay? And these are regulations that are more specific to the priest. So you have to go over to chapter seven, and beginning in verse 29, it says, speak to the sons of Israel. He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offering, so that's the, the, the same one that's in chapter three, to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of peace offerings. His own hands are to bring the offerings by fire to the Lord. He shall bring the fat with the breast, and the breast may be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. So the breast here is to be presented as a wave offering, where the priest would, would wave it up in the air, and then notice it says um, in verse 31, the priest shall offer up the fat in smoke on the altar, but the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. So the breast portion of the animal was to go to Aaron and his sons. The fat, as was already mentioned in chapter 3, was to be burned on the altar. And then notice in verse 32, you shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution to the sacrifices of your peace offering. The one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat and the right thigh shall be as his portion. So the, the priest was to wave the breast of the animal 
And then the priest would take that. That was his portion. Then the right thigh, this was to be waved almost as a way of giving it unto the Lord and then God giving it back. And so that was the priest's portion and he was to eat it there in the tabernacle. It was to be cooked and they were to partake. And then if you backtrack to verse 15 of the same chapter, now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of the thanks uh, of his thanksgiving peace offering it shall be eaten on the day of his offering he shall not leave any of it over until morning so here this is instruction now for the worshiper for the one who brought the animal not the priest the priest eats the rest of the i'm sorry the the worshiper eats the rest of the animal so god gets the fat the priest gets the breast and the right thigh, and the worshiper gets the rest, okay? Now, you may be thinking about that and thinking, well, man, if he brings, like, a cow, <laughs> that is an awful lot of meat, right? And notice this clear instruction here. If it was a, a thank offering, you couldn't have any leftovers, Verse 16, but if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive or a free will, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers the sacrifice. On the next day, what is left over of it may be eaten, but what is left over from the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned with fire. And so again, that could potentially be an enormous amount of meat for one worshiper to bring and to have to consume in two days and you think wow you know he'd be doubled over oh i can't fit any more steak but mercifully and i love this deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 17 and 18 gives us a hint what also can be done with the sacrifice you're not allowed to eat Within your gates, the tithe of your grain offer, of your grain or new wine or oil, or the firstborn of your herd or flock, or any of your votive offerings, which you vow, this is one of the peace offerings, your free will offerings, or your contribution to the land, uh, contribution of your hand. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter and your male and your female servants and the Levite who is within your gates and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. Isn't that wonderful? In other words, it wasn't just the worshiper. It wasn't just the priest. The worshiper could bring all of his family, all of his friends, and they would feast together before the Lord. And this description here, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. It was to be a celebratory feast of the peace that God had granted that had come through the sacrifice of atonement that he had provided for them. It was to be a joyous celebration of eating and feasting before the Lord their God. What a wonderful thing, a barbecue before God. And isn't it just like God? I mean, you see that the underlying assumption here, the underlying assumption is that man by nature is at war with God. Man by nature is in conflict with God. And man needs a sacrifice. Man needs a substitute in order to be at peace with God. And God in ancient Israel had provided this way of sacrifice. And in, in, in specifically with these peace offering, a way to enjoy the peace that existed between man and God. God was inviting man to his table. It makes me think of the the prodigal. Remember that parable that Jesus gives of that, that son? That son who thumbs his nose up at his father and says, Dad, in essence, I wish you were dead. 
You know that money that, that, you know, you went to that lawyer and you wrote up that little will, that money you're going to give me after you die? Why don't you just give it to me now and we'll be good. I'll be out of your hair. I won't talk with you. I won't bother you. I'm just going to go kick it with me and my friends. And his father acquiesces and gives him his inheritance. And he goes off and splurges all of his inheritance. And you remember, there's a famine in the land. And pretty soon he's eating, he's sharing his meal with the pigs. And he finally comes to his senses. And he realizes that that he's not worthy to be a son. And he's, he's thinking, maybe my dad will just take me back as a servant. And I can just be with his servants because his servants are better off than I am now. And you remember what he does. He makes his way back to his father's house. And, <laughs> and you're just, you know, as you're hearing this, and if you would have heard it for the first time, you would have been just wanting his father to give him a whooping or something, right? But he doesn't. His father is waiting for him to come back and he rejoices for him to come back. And he says, bring out the robe and put it on, his, put it on my son. Bring out a ring and put it on his, his finger. And then... The third instruction is bring the fattened calf because we're going to celebrate because my son was lost and now he's found. He's welcome to the table. I'm not going to make him eat in the slave quarters. My son was lost and now he's found. Son, come to the table. Come and eat. You're welcome into the family. You see, friends, that's a picture of what God is doing here in the peace offering. He's saying, sons and daughters, come eat with me. Be reconciled to me through the burnt offering and come with the peace offering and rejoice and celebrate the peace you have with me. We're not at war. All is forgiven if you would just come and humble yourself before me. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of the assurance that the believer can have of peace with God. And friends, what's amazing here is this is, God gave us these pictures in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament, and, and these pictures no doubt would have, would have kind of left the the Hebrew, the, the, the Israelite with a kind of nagging wonder, is this really enough? Because I, I keep having to come back each feast and do this again and again. Each time I do this, I, I still go home and I sin again and fail. And You see, these sacrifices never could really cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. And so the author of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews 10, 3 and 4, but in those sacrifices there was a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. These bulls, these goats, these sheep didn't actually take away sin, but, but the promise was there. The promise looked forward to that which would actually take away sin. And so Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is in his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, what God is saying is that now as new covenant believers, we can come to God with confidence and sup at his table 
with full assurance, we've been washed, completely washed, completely clean. The sacrifice of Christ enables us to enjoy peace with God. So friend, do you enjoy peace with God? Do you have assurance that you are safe at his table? You can. If you have laid your hand upon the head of the Lord Jesus, if he is your confidence, you have been washed clean. You can sit at his table. He wants you to enjoy. He wants you to celebrate. He doesn't want you doubting whether you belong. Years ago, we had a foster child in our home, and uh, he, had, he was a, a fairly new placement into our home. And I, I remember not long after he came to our home, he was looking at pictures on the wall and there weren't any pictures of him on the wall because he had just come to our home. And he pointed to my nephew, of whom he had the same hair color, and he said, that's me. That's me. I'm on the wall. His little heart was longing to be part of the family. He wanted to have a place at the table. I fear sometimes that's how Christians are. They think that they don't belong. Maybe you spend too much time looking at your own self and your own inadequacies and your own failures and and you're not looking to Christ as the perfect sacrifice and because of that, you're not able to enjoy the peace that you have with God. Friend, God wants you to enjoy your spot at the table. But yes, if you're looking at yourself, if your confidence is in yourself, then you actually don't belong at the table. If you're trusting in your, yourself, your merits, your own righteousness, there's never enough. But if you're trusting in the death and in the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, You are welcome at the table. You have a place at the table. And God says, come and eat. Come and eat. It's an offering for you to enjoy your peace with God. Secondly, it's an offering that expresses joyful thanks. We we saw a hint of this in chapter 7. Turn to chapter 7, verse 11. It says, now this is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings which shall be presented to the Lord. And he's going to give three different instances in which the sacrifice might be brought. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving, then along with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, he shall offer unleavened cakes mixed with oil. And the unleavened wafers spread with oil and cakes of well-stirred fine flour with oil. So it says if he's going to bring it as a Thanksgiving offering, he needs to bring muffins for the priest. Okay, these are, uh, notice what he says here, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers. I guess these ones wouldn't have been the muffins, but some of them were, were leavened cakes in verse 13, With the sacrifice of the peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread. Of this he shall present every one, uh, one of every offering as a contribution to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. And now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of uh, of his thanksgiving peace offerings, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it over until morning. So this first one here, it, is, it was to be brought as a thanksgiving offering. It was to be accompanied by either uh, unleavened bread or leavened bread for the priest. 
And, and, and isn't this appropriate? The natural response, and again, remember the theology here, this peace offering went on top of that ascension offering or that burnt offering. After the atonement is made, after the sinner is accepted before God, the natural response would be one of thanksgiving. I'm forgiven. God loves me. God cares for me. God welcomes me to his table. Thank you, Lord. This idea of peace we see here in this peace offering. And then as the scriptures unfold, through the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah speaks of this future king. Our young people memorized this verse recently in our catechism class under the question of how did the eternal Son of God become man? He was born of the Virgin Mary. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What's the last one? Prince of Peace. Prince of Shalom. He is a king who would bring peace. And then as the prophet Isaiah unfolds the writing of his scroll in chapter 53 of Isaiah, it says, surely he himself bore our griefs and our sorrows he carried, and yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our shalom. Our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And so the prophet Isaiah prophesies of a prince of peace, a king who would bring peace between God and man. And then he further elaborates that he would bring about this peace through a peace offering where he himself would be crushed for their iniquities, the chastening, the beating that we deserve. would be upon him and that it would be for our peace. And then when we fast forward to the gospel of Luke, you remember as the angels are there at the birth of Christ, they're singing. Luke chapter 2 and verse 13 says, Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Peace. Peace. And of course, Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace. Peace that was pictured in the peace offering. Peace that is fulfilled in the peace offering of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says, Christ himself is our peace. He is our peace. And the proper response to the reality of we who deserve God's eternal wrath and judgment, but who have now been made at peace with God, is to say thank you. To bring a thank offering. Now, again, we don't bring goats. We don't bring bulls or cows or sheep from the herd. 
But do we bring our thank offering with our lips? In fact, it is interesting, even even, uh, Psalm 119, let me see if I can find 119 verse 8, it says, Oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. So even in the Old Testament, it talked about a free will offering, which was a peace offering, as we're going to see in a minute, a free will offering of my mouth. Thank you. And of course, the author of Hebrews says that we can bring the sacrifice of praise. Remember Hebrews 13, 15? Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So that while we may not bring animals, we can still have thankful hearts. We can still offer thanks to him through our prayers. We can still offer thanks to him with a, with a life of joy and gratitude to him that right now we are not in the confines of hell and under his hand of judgment because we have been reconciled to him and there is now peace with this great God. And so friend, as one pastor asked the question, do you bring thank offerings to God or do you bring crank offerings to God? Are you a thankful person or are you a cranky person? And again, friend, think, think, think about Israel here. You know, the, the context of Torah, the context of the Pentateuch. What comes after Leviticus? The book of Numbers. If you were to summarize Numbers with one word, what might it be? You may say wanderings, but you may also say grumbling. <laughs> Because God miraculously provides bread for them from heaven. I mean, bread dropping out of heaven, manna from heaven. We don't like manna. We want meat. God provides for them Moses. We don't like Moses. We want to be in charge. He's always telling us what to do. I mean, all of numbers, it's just grumbling and complaining and God bring his hammer of chastisement over and over. And so God built into the system of sacrifices, a, a sacrifice that could specifically be used as an expression of thanksgiving and praise to the great God who is in response to the atonement that he has provided. And so as new covenant believers... We too ought to bring our sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. To live lives of thankfulness before him. To live lives of gratitude before him. Remember Jesus, that account in Luke chapter 17. He heals 10 lepers. He tells them, go to the priest, which... You know, we'll see later on the book of Leviticus had to be done as a kind of inspection process to make sure that the leper actually was free of his leprosy. And Jesus says, all you lepers go to the priest. Now, keep in mind, if you were a leper in ancient Israel, you were an outcast. You, you, were, you were shunned by everybody. Nobody wanted to get close to you. And Jesus miraculously heals these 10 lepers so that they would no longer be outcasts. They could be brought back into the community of Israel. But do you remember there's only one of them who returned and said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And Jesus said, where's the other nine? Friend, don't be like the other nine. Don't live a life of ingratitude. Don't fail to give thanks to God. There's always reason to give thanks. Now, I don't mean to minimize in any way the reality of life in a fallen world. There's, there's much suffering in this world. And, and, and one of the things you learn early on as a pastor 
is that God is not a socialist when it comes to distributing sufferings in this world. It's not equal distribution. It's not equal redistribution. Some seem to get pounded with suffering and others less. And God knows what is best for each of his children. But my friend, no matter how much suffering you endure in this fallen and broken world, it's not nearly the amount of suffering you deserve in hell. And so there is always reason to be thankful for. Because whatever you're enduring right now, it's not hell. And if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in him by faith, you have the promise of a world to come where there is no suffering, where there is no pain. And so let me just say right now, if, you, if you've not yet trusted in Christ, turn to him. Turn to him. Find peace with God, not on the basis of your own goodness, not on the basis of your own deeds, but find peace with God because of another, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that perfect sacrifice. And in him, you can enjoy peace. But without him, there will be no peace. You are at war with God. And it won't go well for you for all eternity. So it's a sacrifice, an offering to enjoy peace with God. It's a, it's a sacrifice to express thanks to God. But it's thirdly a sacrifice that expresses a joyful promise before God. Back to Leviticus chapter 7 and verse 16. It says, but if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive offering, a votive offering, now, you all know what a votive offering is, right? No, you don't. That's why I'm going to explain it to you. A votive offering was an offering that was given after a vow had taken place. And God had fulfilled that vow or that prayer request. And now you, it was your time, your turn to kind of fulfill your end of the agreement. And you would bring an offering before the Lord. And it would be a votive offering. It would be a peace offering that was celebrating God's answer to prayer. An example of that? I'm glad you asked. 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. You remember it starts out with Hannah and Elkanah and Penina and... Uh, Elkanah has two wives, which is never a good idea. It's always portrayed in a bad light in Scripture. Uh, and so there's this rivalry between Hannah and Penina because, you remember, Hannah is unable to have children. And so Penina thinks that this is funny. And she keeps jabbing at Hannah over and over. Ha, ha, nah, nah, I got all these kids. You don't have any. That's why he married me. And you remember Hannah, on one of their trips to the tabernacle, she cries out to the Lord, begging him for a son. And she's in earnest prayer so much that Eli, the priest, she's evidently as she's mouthing this prayer, she thinks, or he thinks she's drunk, which is probably more indicative of the way things were during that time, how dark that time was, but she's not drunk. She cries out to the Lord, and she, she makes a vow before God. She says, God, if you will but give me a son, I will dedicate him unto you. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, Then Elkanah, her husband, said, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not better than ten sons? That's a typical husband's statement, you know. Why do you need a child, honey? You have me. Verse 9, then Hannah arose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the, on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. 
and she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall ever come on his head. So she makes a vow and says, Lord, if you'll give me a son, he will, uh, and then the language of Numbers 5, he will be a Nazarite for his whole life. No razor will come to his head. It will be a Nazarite vow. He'll be totally dedicated unto the Lord. And as you know, the story unfolds in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 24. She has a boy, a baby boy. She cried out to the Lord, and so she names this child Heard by God, Shamael, Samuel. In verse 24, now when she had weaned him, she took him, uh, took him up with her with a three-year-old bowl and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. And she dedicated and, and he, uh, he is dedicated to the Lord, and she worshiped there. But notice what she brought with her in verse 24. A bull and some flour. This was for a peace offering. Because God had answered her prayer. And so this was a joyous occasion for her to celebrate and give thanks to God for, for the way he had heard her cry and answered her prayer. I was tremendously convicted this week about how I'm often not alert in my praying and thinking about how God answers the prayers, the requests I've made. Because those are opportunities then, as God hears our cry, for us to give thanks to Him. If you're anything like me, you know, you pray about something and you forget about it and go on your merry way. And... But we need to stay dialed in on those prayer requests. Stay dialed in. How, how is God answering that? What's He doing? What's he up to? And how can I give thanks to him in the ways in which he is answering this prayer? Now, a word of caution about vows. You ever, ought never to use a vow as a way to try to manipulate God. That never works out well. You can't strong arm the Lord. Also, you want to always be careful in making your vows. You know, Ecclesiastes 5 says, uh, be cautious. Don't let your words be many. You may want to seek counsel. It's probably a good idea to seek counsel with others before you would make a vow. And also, make sure you always pay up on your end of the vow. And do it with a thankful heart. So, this offering, it's an offering that uh, enjoys peace with God, expresses thanks to God. Also, it's an offering that enjoys the joyful promise of God. And then fourth, an offering that expresses joyful love. Verse 16 of chapter 7 of Leviticus, it says, but if the sacrifice of, of his offering is a votive or a free will offering... Now, some of you are getting nervous now. You think this is about free will and predestination or something like that. It doesn't have to do anything with that. So you can be at ease. <clears throat> but the idea here of a free will offering is you're bringing an offering because you want to. It was a kind of spontaneous 
gift to the Lord, a, a spontaneous act of gratitude and thanksgiving of a heart that is filled with love because of the wonder of his salvation. You just want to bring an offering before the Lord. There's no particular reason. You're just, your heart is overflowing with love and adoration for God. A lot of times grandparents do this kind of thing, you know. You get a knock at the back door and all of a sudden Grammy's there, Papa's there with a big bag of candy. <laughs> it's not a holiday. There's no special occasion. It's just Grammy loves her grandkids. Papa loves his grandkids. He just wants to express love. Ooey, gooey, gushy love. Well, in a similar way, this, this is what this peace offering, this was another function of it. Let's go to the tabernacle and let's, let's give all the fat to the Lord and we'll eat there together. It's kind of like, let, let's go for ice cream. Let's celebrate. Let's enjoy God's hand of goodness towards us. And also, it's no accident here that, that part of the offering was the fat. This was the best part of the animal, but also the kidneys. The kidneys... Throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures often represented the, the inner man, even the emotions. And so the bringing of the kidneys was a, a, a way of expressing to God, God, I'm all of you. I, I love you with all my kidneys. We might say with all our heart. God, you, you have my heart. I love you. Truly here, again, God, God invites us to the table and we come with a heart filled with gratitude, filled with love, filled with thankfulness. Well, this is certainly the sacrifice of feasting. And we started with food, now we need to end with some food. Because God's not done with feasting before him. The peace offering isn't the last time that people are eating in the presence of the Lord. In fact, Jesus himself uses shocking language when he describes what it is to believe in him. In John chapter 6, in verse 53 and 54, it says, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and, and the interpretive grid for that is in, in John 6, 35, where Jesus himself is the bread of life, and he who comes to him will never hunger, and he who believes upon him will never thirst. And so the new covenant believer feasts upon Christ through faith, through believing, through coming to him. So much that he even uses the gruesome language of drinking his blood and eating his flesh, which, remember, the, the flesh of the sacrifice of the Old Testament was part of it, the eating of the flesh, but the drinking of the blood wasn't. But even that, Jesus says, you, you have all of me. And then, of course, with the instituting of the Lord's Supper, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is a recording of, of Luke's account where Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And so Jesus institutes a feast, a feast that is a kind of participation with him, not, not in a bodily kind of way, but in a remembrance kind of way where we spiritually commune with the Lord by faith and feast before him. But the feasting's not over. 
you turn to the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, Jesus says to one of the churches, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What? Tree of life? I thought that was ancient history. God's saying, you could eat in my presence again, just like Adam and Eve ate in my presence from the tree of life. You can eat again in my presence if you overcome, if you hold fast to me. And then, of course, more famously, Revelation 3.20, another letter to the church. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. Did you catch that? Jesus is standing at the door knocking. Usually stop there and Jesus says, open up. And if you open up, we're going to eat together. We're going to dine together. And then Revelation ends in chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The Bible begins with eating before the Lord and it ends with eating before the Lord. Sometimes people say, is there going to be food in heaven? Of course there's going to be food in heaven. Why wouldn't there be food in heaven? But we will eat in heaven in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and new earth, in the presence of God Almighty. Friend, there will be a family reunion above, a food fellowship above before the Lord. Don't miss that appointment. Make sure you have that one on the calendar. Let's pray.